Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Our very special guest today is Abby Joseph Cohen, Advisory Director and Senior Investment Strategist at Goldman Sachs. She's been called the Prophet of Wall Street and was named to Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance for 2020. Abby, we're honored to have you here with us today. Welcome. Tony, thank you very much, and I'm delighted to have this opportunity uh, to speak with everyone who's listening in. I know, Abby, as you like to say, we want to first start by satisfying the lawyers. So please keep in mind, everybody, that Abby's insights should not be interpreted as investment recommendations. So, Abby, let's start with the landscape from a COVID-19 perspective. I know that you have a particular interest in the healthcare environment. You've published pieces on the U.S. healthcare system, and I know that you're particularly plugged into a community of healthcare experts in New York City. How are you seeing and what are you hearing in terms of our progress in combating the disease and, and the outlook? So how are you seeing the overall environment from the healthcare perspective? Tony, I think you're absolutely right to start with the discussion of COVID uh, because clearly that has been the overriding factor uh, for investors and for people um, over the last uh, several months. One of the things that does disturb me, quite frankly, is when we discuss the data on a nationwide basis. My area, the New York City greater metropolitan area, was among the first afflicted and hardest hit. And we fortunately are now seeing a dramatic improvement in the data. And that's great for us, but it is distorting the nationwide statistics. So while the numbers of new cases are going down and the number of deaths going down uh, substantially in the New York area, um, it's distorting the nationwide data in which we're seeing many states uh, in which, in fact, the number of new cases is rising. And this, of course, is very disturbing, and not because of the numbers of cases, but clearly the impact on people and the fact that in any number of cities um, around the country, uh, there is now concern about the capacity in hospitals, ICUs, and, of course, the availability of specialty equipment like ventilators and dialysis machines. So we saw, for example, last week, to your point, Abby, that 20 states in Puerto Rico had their worst weeks yet in terms of the total number of new infections detected. Texas had a record high for hospitalizations. Now, I know that the actual number of tests that are being run is larger, but in many of these states, we're actually seeing the positive rate come back either at level to past weeks or even in higher numbers in, in some cases. And I think that it's sometimes a bit dangerous where we get positive news on some of the therapy efforts that have been undertaken um, because it seems to perhaps encourage people to let their guard down um, when we're far from out of the woods. So what do you, what do you see happening in terms of the, the idea of maybe this is part of the first wave or maybe there's going to be a, a bigger second wave? Tony, as you noted before, I've had the good fortune to be involved with one of the leading uh, medical research facilities in the United States. Uh, and this is while Cornell Medicine, which is uh, 
part of New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I've had the opportunity to look at some of the information closely that is available from the public health experts who are working there, who are also working in concert with a number of other institutions around the world, including um, Oxford University. And one of the concerns I think that the specialists uh, is expressing are expressing is that we haven't seen, in fact, the end of the first wave yet, that there are a number of places uh, in the United States and very importantly around the world uh, that are still being hammered by by a very large number of new cases. Uh, And so, for example, if we look uh, in places like India or Latin America or other places in the southern hemisphere, uh, the disease uh, is a very uh, long way away from being even at the end of the first wave. This has consequences for us as well, because until there is a vaccine or a natural herd immunity of 60 to 70 percent, the public health experts believe that the risks will remain. And so while that is the case, the possibility of a second wave is a very significant one, particularly as we see the relaxation of the social distancing and the masks. One of the things that has really struck me has been the following. While we like to talk about the potential for antiviral medication as treatment and the latest report that there is a steroid that has been on the market for years that may be helpful uh, for patients who are on ventilators, the single most important recommendation being made by all the public health experts is to wear a mask cover your face in some manner, um, and to keep your social distance. That seems to be, while it's very old school, and those recommendations have been around, uh, not just in the case of COVID, but in many other uh, pandemics over the decades, uh, that that seems to be the best uh, strategy for most people right now. It sounds like from your comments, Abby, that what you really believe is going to happen over coming months or even calendar quarters here in the U.S. is that we're going to be on a bit of a roller coaster in terms of different areas of the country sort of opening, maybe having to pull back on the openings. Um, As we see, um, we can get into the semantics of first wave versus second wave, but essentially as we see um, ebbs and flows of the disease hitting different communities around the country. Tony, yes, I think you've captured that correctly. If you think about that as as our healthcare backdrop, let's talk about the economic outlook Chairman Powell of the Fed has come out on behalf of the Fed and expressed essentially a projection of about a 6.5% drop in GDP for 2020, followed by a gain in 2021 of maybe 5% and then a um, more of a normalization towards 3.5% in 2022. Do, you, do those numbers strike you as realistic, optimistic? How did you react to those particular numbers? I think the pattern of those numbers uh, is probably correct. And I very much liked your categorization of the health situation, but also the economic situation as being a roller coaster. Um, and the economist at Goldman, uh, very much in line with what the Fed is saying, is that we have probably seen the worst decline um, in the economy already with regard to employment, income, uh, GDP, and so on. And so while we might have 
slight disagreements in terms of, well, is GDP going down uh, 5% or 6% or 7% this year? I think most of us uh, agree that there will be a recovery in 2021. And interestingly, um, my Goldman Sachs colleagues uh, tend to be a little bit at the upper end of the kind of snapback uh, we're going to see. We have to, however, remember that even with a very significant snapback, we're not going to be where we were. Uh, The unemployment rate will still be quite high. Um, We uh, don't expect to get anywhere close uh, to where we were uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, So, for example, the unemployment rate uh, could easily touch, uh, you know, close to 10 percent. And it's going to take a year or two or longer uh, to get much below 7 percent. And we also uh, take a look at things like personal income. The interesting thing here, of course, is that with the programs that were put in place uh, by the Congress and signed into law by the president, there was a great deal of income substitution and income uh payback, if you will, um, in in terms of many people receiving unemployment benefits, which not only replaced uh, their income, but exceeded the income that they might have earned previously. And it's one of the reasons that we have seen a nice snapback in retail spending. One of the questions that we have is what will policy look like come the summer? Uh, Keep in mind that Uh, At the end of June, the current um, uh, protection program, the PPP, uh, ends. Uh, We don't yet know whether it will be extended. Um, In July, states around the U.S. will enter their new fiscal years. Many of them are now in financial duress, and we don't know what they're going to need to cut employment and spending. And at the end of July, uh, that extra $600 a week uh, that was included in the unemployment benefit uh, will disappear. Uh, And so we're going to be watching very carefully to see what the Congress and the president do uh, in the next uh, few weeks and couple of months uh, to replace and or adjust uh, these particular programs, because if they don't do something, uh, the outcome for the second half of this year and 2021 could change very significantly from what many people are now expecting. To that point, Abby, one of the concerns that we've been discussing and evaluating within our economics team here at, at Wilmington Trust is specifically whether or not we will have perhaps a second wave of unemployment, probably not as large as the initial wave, um, but nonetheless, when the PPP runs out and companies are no longer incented or required to keep their employees on the payroll in order to have these so-called loans become grants, um, we could see a, a wave of unemployment at that point. So that's something that we're quite worried about in addition to the negative impact on retail spending when that unemployment you've talked about runs out as well. One thing to keep in mind is that the people who might lose their jobs uh, over the next two, three, four months are not necessarily the people who are currently on furlough. Uh, Many of the people currently on furlough are in service jobs, uh, things like restaurants, retail, and so on, um, and they may be able to come back to work uh, to some degree. The people that 
who who may lose their jobs going forward may be employees of state and local governments um, and also other companies who have decided that they just cannot uh, see getting back to prior levels of activity uh, within the next uh, period of time. So before we get to the market, I wanted to, do want to ask you one more question about the trajectory of the economy as it relates to the Fed overall program. The Fed has really undertaken a lot of different unprecedented actions that range from the expectation of zero interest rates through a number of years to the expansion of the availability of capital for banks and the requirements of capital that banks need to hold in order to create more lending on the part of banks to the Fed wading into the corporate bond market and buying bonds themselves. When you think about all of those actions in the totality, do you see any ultimate problems ensuing, whether it be inflation or whether you see other distortions in the financial system or problems in the financial system as a result of the medicine that we had to take to get us through this period? Uh, I'm one of those people, Tony, who believes that the Fed has done the right thing. Now, that does not mean that every single action they've taken will prove to have been exactly appropriate, but for them to have moved quickly uh, and decisively accomplished several things. First of all, it calmed the financial markets, which were in danger of seizing up. And if the financial markets don't work, there can be no recovery of any sort. Um, and I think that they've also, uh, through um, various programs that were first initiated uh, during the global financial crisis, 2008 and 2009, they recognized that they had mechanisms at their disposal to get into the markets, calm things down, and make sure that liquidity got to uh, the companies um, within the, the overall uh, economy. And the focus has been um, companies of various sizes, and I think that's very, very important. Will this ultimately trigger inflation? Um, I think that if it does, it is a long-term problem, not a short-term problem. This is a Fed that, like many other central banks, has a goal of about 2% inflation. And we're probably running um, at about 1%. Uh, so I'm not terribly concerned about inflation in the short to intermediate term. The Fed has indicated that they think uh, that interest rates will stay roughly where they are for the next couple of years. So I don't think the, the, the concern is inflation. What I would be watching for as a macroeconomist are potential signs of disinflation and deflation. And by that, I don't necessarily mean swings in things like the stock market, but rather looking at personal income levels. Right now, personal income, as we've discussed a few moments ago, has been held steady or in some cases boosted through the unemployment benefits programs. Uh, but we'll be watching carefully to see what happens to wages uh, once the economy stabilizes. We certainly hope that wages will be calm and will gradually move higher. Uh, that's always an indication of an economy uh, that is recovering and beginning to expand again. One of the things that we've noted, Abby, is savings rates have moved up significantly, and a lot of households have utilized cash to pay off credit cards. So certainly the propensity to spend has dropped 
notwithstanding a recent increase in retail sales, um, there's still an underlying concern and sort of mentality of hunkering down on the part of many families across the country. So pivoting to the, the markets, given the very structurally disturbed economy that we're living within now, is the market being just too optimistic? Is there is the big disconnect between economic fundamentals with a time horizon of a year or so and the level of equity markets and the multiple that we see, does it make any sense to you? Well, let's start with the following, which is these markets are extremely volatile. So we can have a conversation today, Tony, about current valuation levels. And by the time people listen to this podcast, the valuation levels could be entirely different. So let's let's be humble uh, in that regard. Uh, but right now, we are looking at a stock market that has retraced um, almost all of its losses. Um, and as a consequence, we see a PE and other valuation metrics that basically say the market is at fair value based upon economic and profit expectations for year-end 2021. Um, And that might be correct. However, we don't know about the intervening valleys and the intervening uh, aggravations uh, that we will all be uh, going through. And so from that standpoint, it's really quite interesting uh, to see that investors are willing to look over those valleys and say, the Fed has this. We believe the Fed will provide whatever liquidity is needed. We believe that companies will come to the fore and that things will will be okay. Um, that might be correct in aggregate. Here are some of my concerns. Uh, first of all, a good deal of the recovery in shares has been related to some stocks, not all. Um, We know, for example, that technology stocks have performed extremely well, and maybe that is appropriate given the changes we're seeing in the economy. Uh, But we also know that there are some industries that will lag in terms of their recovery, and we need to be more careful when we think about whether those stocks are appropriately valued, number one. Number two, there will likely be a difference as the nation emerges from this terrible period in terms of how large companies do and how small companies do. So, for example, larger companies may be able to adjust uh, to some of the new requirements uh, with regard to health protections or the new needs with regard to digitization. Maybe they'll be able to do that more nimbly and can afford it more easily uh, than smaller companies. So there are quite a number of things uh, to think about when we look at the stock market. Um, as always, uh, the stock market is a discounting device. It's looking into the future uh, rather than trying to price the current picture. Uh, the current picture, um, while it's getting better, um, is still not very good. So clearly you have to believe uh, that things will uh, be improving, if not steadily, but things will be improving on this roller coaster path and will be notably better uh, by the end of 2021 to think that the market is appropriately priced right now. 
And I really like, Abby, the way that you've described for us the market as looking into the future. Um, that's what it means to say that, that the market is a discounting mechanism. Because when we think about the idea that the market is fairly valued for the end of 2021, that sort of implies the market as a glass half full discounting tool rather than a glass half empty discounting tool. And what I mean by that is even that outcome still requires some assumptions around the outcome of the COVID situation, like that we get a vaccine, for example. We're nowhere close to the herd immunity that you're describing of 60 to 70 percent to be able to get on with our lives without the vaccines. So not only does everything have to go right from a reopening standpoint in order to understand where the market's going, but we also need to get that vaccine. Um, And if we don't, I think that probably entails a very different kind of appropriate valuation level for the markets. We're also assuming that our policymakers uh, in Washington and around the country continue to make good decisions about supporting economic growth. Um, We mentioned earlier, Tony, some of the challenges coming up this summer as the initial relief programs uh, fade out, and we don't yet know whether they'll be reinstituted or at what level. In addition, there are some long-term structural issues that need to be addressed uh, in the economy. There's been a great deal of discussion, for example, about inequality and the whole question about mobility. Um, Is the educational system, for example, sufficiently robust as it has been in prior generations, so that young children have an opportunity uh, to do better. That's one aspect. The other aspect is whether we are investing sufficiently, not just in people through education, but are we investing sufficiently in a nation in things like infrastructure? Um, Mr. Trump, early in his administration, uh, did have conversations um, with the Democrats about a significant infrastructure plan, um, and maybe we will see something like that. We could certainly use it. Uh, it's not just the uh, crumbling roads that we see in some of our major cities. It's also the absence of adequate broadband in many rural communities. What we have discovered over the last few months is that there are some areas of the country that are having a very difficult time because they can't get on Zoom calls and they can have jobs that are linked to the Internet and broadband. For example, in rural communities, access is only about 60% as opposed to in excess of 95% in uh, more urban America. And that is an infrastructure need that we need to address. On the point of education, I've always been a subscriber to the idea that education is absolutely vital in order to increase over time productivity in the economy as digital increasingly becomes how we engage with one another and how our society functions. Um, We need to be able to retrain people. So education is critical. It's also critical from an equality standpoint. Those ideas really resonate with me personally. Thank you for saying retraining because we are now in a 21st century economy in which you don't train for just one job. You need to be continually retrained as job requirements change and as whole industries are converted into different types of technology and processes. 
I want to go there in one moment, actually, and talk about the sort of new economy and the, and the impact of digital as one of the major structural changes from COVID that we'll be living with really for the rest of our lives. But before I do, I just wanted to go back to one point, Abby, which is so important, I think. You've mentioned it a couple times now, which is the need to reprime the, the pump from a fiscal standpoint in terms of these programs that are running out. Without taking a political view here, just talking about the economy, um, I take it then that you believe that they should be reprimed and that we don't need to worry right now about the total size of the debt that that may imply in terms of the number of incremental trillions of dollars. I mean, is there a point at which you get to a conclusion, hey, this is just getting too big and too unhealthy to maintain over the long term, or are we not even close to that point yet? When I speak with my Goldman Sachs colleagues who have the responsibility of putting together forecasts and so on, the basic assumption is that there will be some repriming of the pump, but not to the same degree. Uh, that an awful lot was done early on. Basically, the amount of fiscal stimulus that was applied was roughly equal to about 80% of the estimated loss of GDP. Um, and so going forward, as the economy looks better, uh, but still not where it was, the amount of uh, stimulus needed will be smaller. Perhaps um, it will be targeted uh, to infrastructure, for example, but we do think there is a need uh, for some more. With regard to the budget deficit, it is, of course, uh, at unprecedented levels, uh, both in terms of dollar amount, uh, but also as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and this is something uh, that we always watch and always look at, but from a long-term standpoint. Um, we believe that um, in the, the current year, you know, the deficit uh, will easily exceed uh, $2 trillion, excuse me, $4 trillion, I beg your pardon, um, and in 2021 uh, will exceed um, $2.4 trillion. Um, we are hopeful uh, that it will gradually recede, but there are two ways for the deficit to come down. Uh, one is adjustment in government spending uh, and intake, i.e. taxes and other forms of revenue. The other is for the economy to grow. And I think the single most important metric is not necessarily the dollar amount. It's the dollar amount as a percentage of GDP. How big is the economy? Can we grow our way out of this problem? That would be a very gradual gradual uh, approach, uh, but let's keep in mind that the deficit was deteriorating even before the pandemic. Um, during the first uh, two years of the Trump administration, there was a very significant increase uh, in the budget deficit, both in terms of dollars and as a percentage of GDP, um, in large part because of the, the tax cuts. Um, and we have to recognize that we were moving in the wrong direction. There's also the long-term issue, uh, and the long-term issue has to do with the aging of the baby boomers. Um, as they get older, earn less, pay less in taxes, they will also be taking in more in so-called entitlement spending, uh, particularly uh, Medicare, uh, Social Security is a lesser issue. So uh, as a nation, we have to always keep this in mind. 
but here's my bottom line on it. This is not the year to worry about it. Uh, when the economy gets its sea legs back, that's the point at which we need to start addressing uh, a variety of issues uh, as it relates to the budget deficit. The last topic, which we were just talking about, that I really want to explore with you in a bit of depth is the critical change that we've all experienced that's been, in a sense, accelerated, I suppose, around how we live our lives through technology. We're seeing it in the workplace. We're seeing it through our families. Um, when we Zoom with each other, we're seeing it how we interact with our, our medical providers in many cases. Could you tell us about how important this changes in your mind, Abby, and relatedly, from an investing standpoint, do you see that as being a really important focus in how we build portfolios and invest going forward? Tony, that is such an important question, and I'm going to start by agreeing with you and then to make a comment that may strike people as very odd. Okay, here's the point that is very clear, and that is, yes, we have seen an acceleration in trends that were underway anyway. Uh, things like telehealth, um, education, uh, distance learning, use of video conferencing, and so on. And clearly, what has happened uh, to the world in recent months has accelerated that. Thus far, it is to the relative advantage of those families and companies and industries that are best positioned to be able to afford um, uh, doing things this way, the ones that can afford the social distancing, the ones that can afford to put in place technology uh, and, and so on. The comment I'd like to make, which may strike you as very odd, is that the pandemic may also help us as a nation overall, kickstart, kickstart the innovation that was beginning to flag. One of the things that I've looked at and have written about has been the decline in the urgency that our nation has attached to investing in basic science and research. It peaked as a percentage of GDP, and it peaked as a percentage of our federal budget in the 1960s. Since then, we have been spending less and less as a nation on science and basic research, and dare I say it also, science education, uh, particularly at the elementary and high school levels. And one of the things that distresses me is that as a nation, we used to be number one in this category. We spent more as a percentage of our GDP for basic science and research than any other nation. We obviously spent much more in terms of dollars as well. We're no longer number one in this category. Uh, depending upon which metric you look at, we're sort of number 15. That's not where we should be. We should be much higher ranked, and one of the things that I'm trying to keep in mind as a potential positive is whether the current period of incredible duress and distress um, will help kickstart a re-engagement with science 
and a re-engagement with our nation's investment uh, in this very important set of activities. One always hopes out of the crucible of crisis, whether it be equality, whether it be talking about creating educational opportunity in general, whether it be talking about creating access to the digital world, really, you know, one hopes that out of this painful, making lemonade out of the lemons, out of this period, uh, we're going to make progress in some of these very critical structural challenges that we've sort of accumulated over the years. Abby, with the trend that we've talked about around the economy becoming far more digital and is impacting how we live, how we consume, how we interact as a society, where do you see opportunities for investors to take those trends into account in building their portfolios? My colleagues in the Goldman Sachs Investment Research Department um, have written um, recently um, in a way that I find very interesting, which is the market has already spoken um, in this regard. You know, technology stocks have grown to be about 25% of the S&P 500, which, by the way, is a much larger percentage uh, than is the case in any other country. Helps explain, in part, why the U.S. stock market has outperformed uh, any number of others. And we also see that much of the profit growth uh, that is expected over the next uh, 12 to 18 months or so will be coming from uh, technology stocks. That being the case, we're looking um, uh, as investors at those securities which are still reasonably priced uh, based upon their fundamentals of earnings, margins, and cash flow, um, and those that uh, have a leg up in terms of the ongoing digitization. Uh, my colleagues are also looking at companies in other industries uh, that are taking good advantage of this kind of uh, techno technological change but also some others. Uh, they've been focusing in on uh, the so-called ESG uh, investing, where they think um, a lot of the uh, the focus on um, uh, you know looking at these other characteristics of um, uh, environmental impact, societal impact, and governance uh, are, are critically important. Uh, we also see, for example, a sharp differentiation within the market based upon strength of balance sheets. Not a surprise. Those companies that have strong balance sheets, have their own cash flow, and so on, um, have outperformed others in the marketplace. The interesting exception has developed just over the last two or three weeks, where we're seeing some of the weaker companies uh, beginning to outperform. Uh, now, some people might refer to these as value stocks, and in many cases, they are. Uh, they offer good value for the level of stock price. In other cases, there's a reason why some of these securities are selling at fairly low P.E. ratios or price-to-book ratios, and that is because there's concern about the sustainability of their earnings or whether their book value is appropriately stated. So it becomes, as as is often the expression, uh, it is a market of stocks rather than a stock market. 
uh, particularly when the aggregate suggests we are already at fair value. So it really behooves investors uh, to think through the specific securities and companies uh, that they want to be associated with. Well, thank you so much, Abby. We could go on and on. There's just so much to discuss right now. So as I always do, let me just summarize for folks what I see as uh, three key takeaways from today's conversation. First, I think I would say is that we're clearly not out of the woods from a medical standpoint, from a public health standpoint on COVID. It's very important to remain focused on the social distancing, on the masks, and the fact that the economy is going to be on, like the market, a roller coaster, where we're going to see different parts of the country opening and shutting um, over the next, call it two to six months, as we grind our way through this public health care crisis. That will surely result in many more people joining the unemployed ranks, and we'll see a lot of trouble for businesses in the country. So that's the first thing I, w- I would say. Second is the critical importance um, of the support that we've, re- we've received from the government already, from the federal government, and the continuation of that support. The direct support that we've received in the form of um, what I think of as the cash transfers from the government to small businesses and to employees in order to keep people afloat during, during this period of time. Even if it's not as large as what we've already received, it still needs to continue or people won't be able to to make it to the other side of this crisis. And then lastly, in the criteria that we look at as investors, when we look at companies to invest in, really trying to focus on companies that have positioned themselves well, whether they're within the technology sector or whether they're not technically within the technology sector, but they utilize technology um, or other criteria um, around strong balance sheets, strong governance, focus on society and the environment um, will enable them to be successful. And incorporating those values into portfolios um, overall really is, we believe, a blueprint for a successful investment strategy. And we're, I think, very much in line with what Abby has articulated there. So with that, Abby, I'd like to thank you again so much for your astute insights and for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. 
Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Woman Can Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.